Good morning again, everyone, and welcome to the STEM Tea Podcast with your co-host, Dr. Antonora Othrell-Hitton Jr., who's a faculty member at Vanderbilt University, and Dr. Christina Termini, who's at a faculty member at Fred Hutch Center. And we want to be able to just talk to you today about a very important person that has been doing research as well as diversity, equity, and inclusion. Her name is Dr. Melanie Reynolds. She's an HHMI Hannah Graves Fellow, and she's also an early career chair at the University of Penn State. The title for early career chair is the Dorothy Huck and J. Lloyd Huck Early Career Chair in Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. And we have a variety of topics today to really talk about. We also are excited to kind of talk about what we're drinking on with our STEM Tea podcast today. And let's get started. So Dr. Melanie Reynolds, thank you so very much for being with us today. We know that you're really busy. We won't take up too much of your time. But we first wanted to start with just getting a little bit of background about your research and telling us about how it all started with your postdoc and then transitioning into your faculty position, if you don't mind. Yeah, thank you for having me here. So I look at myself as an NED scientist. So as a grad student, my work really started at the intersection of understanding NED synthesis and consumption and um, really as it plays in development and reproduction. And going through that, we really learned that really understanding it started off as a like a reproductive phenotype and really elucidating that phenotype. It realized that, you know, the PNC1 mutant, which disrupts NAD savage synthesis, really played a role in glycolic blockage at the steps that utilize NAD to fuel glycolysis. So this led us into really pursuing metabolic flux and understanding metabolomics as it relates to development and metabolism. And that was, you know, at that time, a lot of literature arise that, you know, NAD metabolism could be playing a role in aging. My grad advisor hated it at that time. So she was at one, at the end of my slide, I was like, you know, this could lead to the fountain of youth. And Wendy was like, don't ever talk about that again in my lab. Right. And, you know, I didn't, I just, you know, I did what I needed to do to get my work done. I discovered an underground metabolic pathway where uridine biosynthesis can contribute to the novo synthesis of NAD metabolism from tryptophan. So it was like a new metabolism metabolic pathway and C. elegans, which could also be applied to humans. It just kind of showed them two different areas colliding. And so that was a really big discovery with the underground metabolism. I had an opportunity to do my postdoc with Josh Rabinowitz. So at that time, a lot of his work was really beginning in cancer metabolism, but he was establishing like virus metabolism and really the person behind metabolomics, isotope tracing and pioneering those efforts. But I didn't know that he had an NAD project on board, right? So when I got there, it was more so, you know, whatever disease model, whatever you want to do, we can do this, right? And so I was writing a lot of ideas, but everything I wrote about was this in aging or that in aging. And it was, we came together like, why we won't just, you know, look at NAD fluxes, the consumption and degradation of NAD in age mice, right? Just start off general from the basics. And that really just developed my postdoctoral work, really more so beginning to understand metabolism, what contributes to NAD decline with aging, because that was a really big question in the field at that time. And now I'm here in my faculty position where I'm going a little bit more broader, really beginning to understand stress. And as it relates to metabolism, a lot of my postdoc work has shown that it's really all about resiliency and robustness. So our metabolisms are going really fast out of crazy and any event of stress could really just deter everything. And we really see that at the center of a lot of the age-related diseases and chronic inflammation is really a center calls at a lot of that that's going on. 
Along those lines, Mel, you know, that's a great description of the research. And I'm actually curious about, you know, some of the hurdles that you faced during your postdoc. I mean, obviously, there was a global pandemic (laughs) towards the end, which was an unforeseen circumstance. But I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, your own resiliency and some of the challenges you faced and how you overcame those during that time. Yeah, going into my postdoc, it was... Believe, yeah, it was tough in the beginning, right? I think it's not about how you start things, but it's how you finish. And even moving to New Jersey, the cost of a first year postdoc and how expensive it was in Princeton as a grad student, right? I had an opportunity to go to St. Jude where they paid really nicely. Memphis cost of living was affordable, but that was not the place that was meant for me. So me going to Princeton was really stepping out on faith. I mean, walking by faith and not by sight. And I knew I was going to be poor. You know, I could actually feel myself having a heart attack before I moved. Like, how am I going to afford? Like, you know, after taxes, my rent is half of my, you know, it was hard. And I really just had to step out on faith. And when I got there, I could just see how mountains were moving, how things were taking place. I had a C. Elegans background, right? And I was starting to work with mice. My postdoc advisor, he put me over the IUCO protocol. It was the best thing that ever happened to, you know, create my learning curve. I did a lot of his bureaucracy work. So you could complain about that. But however, now, you know, Starting my lab is seamless and flawless almost because I've ran a 25 person lab under Josh when he could just travel the world and do what he needed to do. But I was that person at Princeton, really, you know, taking a lot of leadership roles early on. Applying to the fellowships were hard. You know, you're just there and you just you really just got to submit, really don't have that much help or work. But it all worked out. I remember my Burroughs Welcome Fund. I think my postdoc advisor came back from China. The day was required and I had to have the signature. And I was like, hey, Josh, but you signed this. And he was like, what do you want me to sign? What are you doing? He was like, oh, Burroughs Welcome Fund. Oh, this will be good. You will get this. And he signed it, right? But what if I didn't have the initiative, right, to just do it on my own? And not a lot of times you got to do without, you know, you ask for forgiveness, right? Versus asking for permission. And I just really learned that. I put together my F32 and I thought I was like, oh, Josh was like, yeah, this is awful. This is the worst thing I've ever read, right? But in actuality, I ended up having to decline an F32. But I knew I was just like, uh, if I could put this together, you know, the Hannah Gray deadlines and everything else came after that. And I tell everyone I meet with, like when you're writing those fellowships early on, that is your blueprint to do exactly what you need to do. So I had wrote out those experiments. I had my blueprint and my map. So I was able to go quickly, you know, and get my work done. And a lot of us, it was a lot of us, he hired five postdocs at one time. So everyone's struggling for that place. Everyone's struggling for like the anima room, doing surgeries. We could buy mice, but we can only buy young mice. I had aged mice. And instead of just competing with, you know, five postdocs and all of these eager grad students, I just went to UPenn and collaborated with Joe Byer, who became like a second postdoc mentor. He kind of wrote the same thing in his R01. It was a little different, but he had 10 mice per month. He also had a surgeon, you know, and I was just able to drive back and forth to Philly. Didn't have any money, but I had enough money for gas. My mom used to send me like $100 a week for a lunch and for gas to get back and forth to Philly. So if it wasn't, you know, it was just the little things of having that support and people believing in me and everything worked out, you know, not yeah, with the fellowships, I got it and things changed because then the lab started respecting me. And Josh kind of saw it in the before then and kind of started putting me up in the leadership positions. But, you know, 
it really just took me, like I said, having faith of going there and then taking in the initiative of writing these fellowships without permission and being vulnerable and saying, hey, can you read this and getting, you know, slammed. <laughs> but those edits worked out. So, yeah. And I'll say a difficult, you know, towards the end, of course, the pandemic hit. But I haven't been the same since. Not only did the pandemic really take a loss, but I lost my mother, too. And she was the biggest supporter for me to be where I am. And she had been a part of the entire process. So, yeah, I'm not myself. Right. Who's going to be themselves after this? But it was the one of the hardest things I had to do was watch my mother die. And what she died from is exactly what I'm studying now. Right. And just the connections. And but sometimes you have to walk through it and experience it to really be able to make a difference in that area. So, Mel, first, thank you for sharing that. And the reason I brought up that kind of conversation is because, as you know, with faith, a lot of the times the things that you do in the dark come to light in a good way. Right. You know, and that's what I mean, that you're a beacon of light for so many people. And even though it's just not about just the comments and the tweets, it's about the intentionality of how you've driven a lot of individuals to be able to do so many things and break down barriers. You know, you've the reason that there's, you know, so many people able to write diversity, equity, inclusion articles. You broke down the barriers in huge journals to be able to do that, as well as equivalent in your research portfolios, too. But I really kind of want to talk about the faith part. And I want to talk about how you've started to kind of build that community about faith-based science. If you're willing to share that, I know this kind of going in a different direction than what we planned, but I think it's kind of where we should go and talk about it. And so I'm just curious about your thoughts around faith-based science and then what you're building in that area. Yeah, no, I'm really excited about the faith-based science work and even like the collection that we have of faith-based scholars. So many people have, you know, when I think about faith, faith is really when you believe in a higher power, you believe in yourself and you know that it helps you really navigate the dark times because you know that what doors open are meant to be and what doors close are rejection, right? And sometimes that rejection is protection and redirection or or the spaces that you are brought into, you're meant to be there. And you know that your table will be prepared for you in the presence of your enemy. So you can just kind of take a lot of those wise sayings that we grew up on and really navigate imposter syndrome a lot of times. That's one example. And another really coming together. We are in the field of science where a lot of people hide their faith. Right. You know, it's kind of taboo to talk about. It. It's kind of taboo to believe. But, you know, a lot of people believe in the creation, but, you know, the creator is really, you know, created the creation. Or I think about the big vein when God said that there'd be light. That was a big vein. It's all the same thing. Right. I just don't understand why I can see it. Nobody else can. But anyway, that's another story. But just being able to, you know, share our experiences and really how to navigate those hard times and really believing in your purpose and really being led to about, you know, what type of questions can we ask? What can we really do? How can we really use our science to push forward, you know, a better world where everyone is someone, you know, all differences of people really matter and we can really create a better place to live in. And I feel like at the center of faith-based science, that is what we really can do, just really, you know, contributing to the life that we're supposed to live. It's so interesting, Mel, you speak about being led and I think there's so much rejection in what we do, right? And your description is absolutely perfect because there are so many examples 
in my training where I was crushed by something that happened. And I look back in retrospect, you know, thank goodness I did not end up, you know, going there or, you know, doing that because that would have been, can you describe any of those moments? Yeah, no, I can't. Cause I mean, what we have, what we can see for ourselves is like the best thing in the world. Right. But what the most high has for us, a guy has his, always better than your any dreams right so think about my postdoc you could not tell me I wasn't going to St. Jude so I was like in a NGSS symposium as a grad student they brought me back as a postdoc interview after that I interviewed with like five to ten people so amazing right and it was a really big faculty member there in pharmaceutical sciences he had just became the president of a lot of the really great pharmaceutical American I don't want to give it away too much um associations and we had breakfast and he was like like, you know, I really want you in my lab, but I really can't have anybody in my lab who's never done a Western blot. He was like, I'm really going to have to sleep and think about this, right? But I knew I had an interview with Josh Rabinowitz. Josh was the best person for me. I needed to be at Princeton. And everything that came from me just stepping out on faith and going to Princeton, whereas if I would have went anywhere else, right? So that's an example of really what you have. I would even say coming back to Penn State, like I would this was never in really one of the things I wanted to do. And I remember when Wendy called me and was talking about it and I was flying to Mississippi. That was my mom's 50th. So she was getting her golden diploma from Alcorn. I was going home. After that, we were going to one of our HHMI retreats. This is 2019, right? So the world is still normal. And I was in the airport and I got this call from Wendy and I'm like, what do you want? And she was like, yeah, you know, we're really thinking about how you will be this person, bring back to the department. We're hiring 10 to 15 faculty over the next five to 10 years. And we really think you could you know, she was just selling. And I was like, how dare you? This is disrespectful. I went to HHMI and I told on her, I was like, this is not fair for your grad PI who's department chair to start calling you before you can even have a chance to develop other relationships. But flying back from DC over New York, I really wanted to be in New York too. That's another story for another day. You know, I really, really wanted to be in New York City and be in that area. But flying over the city, I could just hear, you know, clear as day. And it's, you know, if you you go back to Penn State, you can have all of this plus like it was just one of those everything you can have every magic you want to do would be laid if you humble yourself and return. It's not about you. It's about me. Right. And a lot of times we have to humble ourselves to really be exalted. And so I just sometimes when you hear that voice, you cannot deny you cannot. And he's like, am I crazy? So you talk to other people. He's like, is this real? But it's just something that I could not deny. And even like with seeing like offer letters and when things started coming, it was like this was divine. And even how I was led back, losing my mom, like everything, right? It was divine for me to be where I am today. And that's really just, you don't ever know what life has in store, but God does. So no one would have ever known I was going to be losing my mom on the other side of this, right? But, you know, to come back into a place where I created, I had a family during the grad school time. Sometimes you need that foundation to really, especially when you're the only child, it's just you, you know. Yeah, anyway. So those are just a couple of examples. Probably so many more. Could you talk about where your Jeremiah 29 is at right now? Your plan and how you see, you know, God's, if you're allowed to share, because sometimes you're not allowed to share, like if you can share certain components of where you see God taking you with your plan, could you talk about that in whatever capacity that you would like to share? 
Yeah, this is my research for one. Just, you know, it was an institution I could have went to. And one area of my science would have been celebrated there. But being here like on a multi-institutional grant with the DOE to really understand cofactor imbalance in biofuels and bioproducts, right? Like the metabolic engineering, you create an imbalance of cofactors. And that's where I can really come in, address, you know, two birds with one stone. I'm really building a research group around multiple myeloma. So going through with what, you know, a lot of cell, a lot of cancer biologists, immunologists look at CD38 as just an immune marker, right? So it's uniformly highly expressed with multiple myeloma. However, what happens with NAD metabolism, right? Because we know that CD38 is an NAD consumer. It's hyperly activated, especially with age. It's one of the main consumers that deplete NAD with aging. And so multiple myeloma is an age-related cancer too. It's so many, you know. So just, I'm in a position to just be able to do that. And you mentioned like the early career chair. And so that is, you know, funds to really support, you know, a vision that I've had. And it's something that's never been done. And so I'm going to really be able to do what I want to do and create the type of, I can just give personalized training to students, whatever I want to do, right? If I just want to host a student for a year, if I want to host a student for a summer, if I just want to go and do this, do that. I mean, it's something that's never been done. I don't want to talk about it too much because it's never been done right. And I got to do it and I'm doing it. So I'm really excited about my pipeline initiative and having the resources and the support to do so. This is great, Mel. I think you and I are long overdue for a conversation, I think, about myeloma and some of the, you know, potential implications there. It sounds like you're definitely on the right direction. I'm really excited for this new research avenue for you, too, because I think it's going to push you, too, right? It's going to kind of take you outside of your comfort zone in some ways. And, you know, that's really exciting. And I'm sure your students are very excited too about this, you know, hot new topic for the McReynolds research program. So I'm wondering if you could share, you know, some things that you're using your faith to move to the next step. Like, how are you using your faith right now to move to these next steps? When I was here the first time as a grad student, I was a mute. <laughs> so a lot of times people ask, how can you return to your home department? Right. I'm like, yeah, they didn't know me. I just, you know, I was in the background, did what I had to do. We were over here in Huck. So, you know, I was able to create a good situation here, but that really wasn't in BMB. So now I found my voice. And so I can really show up, ask questions, speak. We're doing a dynamic series of recruiting this cycle. And so I've been able to just really go and just where I may be the only woman in a lot of these meetings, you know, or that's in person where a lot of people come in on Zoom, but it's a hybrid world. So just to be able to show up, articulate my voice, be a welcoming face. But I think that's one of the biggest things is because this environment can be intimidating. And the first time around, I was, like I said, I was a mute. I thought I had this Southern accent. I knew I had a speech impediment. So I'm like, I'm not going to say a word. So now to be able to find, to have a voice and to find my voice, I think that's, you know, really a lot of my faith and working through like imposter syndrome and building confidence and just being able to go and still do, you know, the circuit, give talks, conferences, give talks, sessions, chairs, and all of that, you know, you got to be able to have the confidence to show up in that space. And being here, I mean, I feel like I'm almost a comedian again, sometimes when I'm not having my bad days, but um, I can just show up and joke and just really be myself and really being able to be authentic in science 
is something that we cannot admire the most because it's hard. Like we're always code switching, but just with my faith, I'm just me. I'm Melanie. I can just walk and say off the wall jokes. I can just do whatever I want to do and just be authentically me and people receive it. And so, yeah, that's so important. And also just like as a role model too, you know, I think throughout training, we kind of see people fitting into these boxes and being our full authentic selves is so important to show people, okay, that's not, you know, me, that's not me. I'm not that way. And it's okay. And I can still be this incredible scientist. It doesn't take away from that if I fit into some other you know, category. So I think that it's so important. And I'm really glad to hear that you feel comfortable. And I'm sure that it's making an impact that you don't even see yet, because, you know, you're just starting. Exactly. I definitely agree. And one thing that I found very interesting, what you were talking about is the imposter syndrome and how you didn't let it stop you. I kind of think of Isaiah 54 and 17, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. So I'm curious about how you approach imposter syndrome, because it seems like you have a really good handle on it. And I'm wondering if you use laughter, because you also said, I don't know if everybody that's going to be listening kind of can catch what Melanie's saying. Everything that comes out of her mouth is almost like a Bible verse. And so <laughs> what's interesting is she's talking about Proverbs 17, 22. She talked about how she brings laughter to everything. And laughter, what Proverbs 17, 22 talks about is that it's a good medicine for the soul, basically. And so I'm really curious if you use laughter to also overcome imposter syndrome. Yeah, I think it's all of the fruits of the spirit when you think about it. I just really, you know, it's car- we can think about it in the universe. We can think about it biblically, whatever, right? What you give out is what you receive. Just really knowing that I'm chosen, I'm here for a reason. And where God ordains, he sustains, where, you know, you go, you're taken care of. And just knowing that I'm in these spaces for a reason, it really helps just use, utilize, like you said, all of those proverbs, utilizing everything that we learned as a child. It really helps come back. You know, like when you know, when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of the death, right, we're walking through it. We're not walking to it. That's not a space that we're staying. But, you know, when we're walking beside the still waters to really just celebrate those times, like, all right, life is good. Everything is at peace. But I know hard time is going to come. But you said at the beginning, AJ, like, you know, when you in darkness, if you just know you believe that you're a light, light shines through darkness. And we know that it's dark times in this world right now. And so we just have to be those light carriers and those light barriers. And when you just believe, like, you know, despair comes, there's hard circumstances. But when we get, we can defeat fear with our faith. So everything is centered around faith and just really believing that, you know, dark nights may come now, but, you know, the sun will shine in the morning or, you know, all right, I'm stressed out. Everything is hitting me. I am so overwhelmed, but a blessing is on its way. Right. Or, you know, that you're planting seeds. So that's kind of like what you give out is what you receive. So the seeds that you plant, you know that, all right, it's going to spring forth the harvest. But sometimes when the rain comes, you got to celebrate the rain because the rain is watering your seeds, although it is a storm in life. And so it's all balance. It's the yin and the yang. Everything is interconnected, right? But it's really like a boomerang. What you put out into the universe is what's going to be returned to you. How you treat others is how you will be treated. 
You're talking about planting seeds, and that's one of my favorite little isms that I've heard you say. So what another you know quote here, you were born for such a time as this. This is Esther 414. So I'm curious, what do you want to do next for individuals as you build yourself up? Just be a representative. Just allow people to see no matter who you are or where you're from, you can do whatever you put your mind to. If you believe in yourself, you can conquer the biggest giants. You can push the highest mountains. It's just really all about knowing who you are and whose you are. And really just giving other people who are like me or people from different unique circumstances, just give them the exposure, right? A lot of people used to say the pipeline was dead. The pipeline was leaking. It was broken. We were in grad school, right? And we can't, like, we knew it. I was just like, wait a minute. Why y'all saying the pipeline broken? We just grad students. We're not there yet. And so I always knew it was a generation of scientists and scholars like me who knew that, hey, we can be in academia. You know, we know we can do this. This is playing chess, not checkers. Like we probably all played the Sim City. Sim City, just like building your lab. It's just like, you know, anyway, but just being representatives now. So we are in these spaces. If our colleagues respect our science, they will respect what we say about DEI. You know, I associate a lot of the writing we did with the loss of my mother. So it's just something I've dismissed out of my life, but it's something we made impact, right? And a lot. And that's opened up the door for so many other people to just run with it. I feel like it's a dead horse at this point. We can move on to something else. But I also live five years in the future. So I can't discount the things that I've done in the past because, you know, yeah, people just catching up. But what's, you know, what's new? What are we doing now? And yeah, where are we going? I don't know. But we're going somewhere. I really like what you're saying. I mean, one thing you really talk about is kind of being present in the moment and also talking about the future at the same time. And so with that blessing that you have to be able to do both, do you have kind of words of advice where people should be thinking about, I mean, you know, what are the new avenues and, you know, either the mentoring or diversity, equity, inclusion or research area that you think maybe the general field of metabolism should try to go towards or, you know, in those kind of arenas or in faith based science where you really are, you know, I think they're going to be the leader, not an emerging leader, but, you know, you're practicing it. You're living that out right now. And so I'm just kind of curious about your thoughts around that. I think individualized, personalized mentorship or and that's somewhat to the faith-based science and the science in general, right? And I think we've talked about that. It's, you know, you really can't have a one-trick pony for everything. So really celebrating people's authentic selves and giving them the personalized training that they desire is key. And I think as far as like, you know, how do we do biology without a microscope? So how do we study metabolism without, you know, so really pushing spatial omics is really the future, but really pushing the limitations with spatial metabolomics lipidomics. So we can really begin to see how metabolism is changing at the individual cell level. And so that is the future. And all it takes is just one technical breakthrough to really push the field forward. So we think about cryo-EM, it had been around forever, but it was a couple of technical advancements that have this as the hottest field right now and really being able to do so much as far as, you know, EM imaging, et cetera. So I feel like the same thing is going to break with imaging mass spectrometry in the future, but I'm excited to see, you know, the people who are, you know, hopefully somebody hear this and <laughs> create the technical advancement so we can do what we need to do at the single cell resolution that we need to do it at. But until then, we can at least answer the questions that we can. 
Sounds great. Sounds like a prosperous field ahead and lots for you to work on for the next several decades. You know, you speak a lot about all of your research program and, and mentoring, and this is amazing for me to hear, and I'm sure others are learning a lot too. But I'm also curious about you and how you take care of yourselves and, you know, <laughs> your own self-care and, you know, taking care of your own mental health. Do you have any, you know, tips or tricks or things that you've learned along your journey? Because I think it's probably morphed, right, over the course of, you know, grad school all the way to where you are now. And yet, whatever you do, whatever mechanism you have to take care of yourself, you just have to know how to find your happy place to find your place of regrouping and just know what do you need, right? So what I do may not be any other's cup of tea, but we just have to be whatever it is, right? You just got to know what makes you you, what gives you your happy, you know, like how do you regroup? How do you do your self-care? And so, yeah, I've had the same routine probably over a decade. It's good. And, you know, I think, again, it's changed to now where we can have these open conversations with our mentees about this. And it's very different than I think when I was in grad school, where it's not, it was a very, I don't think I was ever made aware of, you know, needing to take time for self-care. And now it's something that I do bring up, you know, with my mentees. And I think it's so important. And you're setting a good example in that realm, I think, as well, by, you know, being willing to talk about that, too. Yeah, everyone knows my two hour morning routines and it's not going to ever change, but people, you know, so you just have to do what you have to do and find your happy space. I used to joke in grad school. I'm like, some people are going to club it out. Some people are going to drink it out. Some people are going to intercourse it out. Some people are going to do it, drugs it out. Some people are going to church it out and pray it out. But whatever you got to do to be, you know, to be sane in grad school, you know, find your mental health therapist, find your life coach, find the people, you know, don't overwhelm other people with your burdens, but no, it's kind of like, you know, we talk about the different mentors, right? How you have a mentor, an advisor, a sponsor, an advocate, and you take different things to different mentors. But it's the same with your friends, right? What friend group, what group chat can give you the support you need when you're going through an issue, right? You can't take some of your blessings to certain people. They may not know how to receive it, but some people can know how to celebrate with you or you can have the worst day in your life and you may have a friend who's going to pour it into you, right? So kind of just know for yourself, what do you have to do? <laughs> yeah, I think of one thing for me is actually when I go and get my nails done. So I've been going to the same nail artist for like over a year now. And that hour, like I value hour. that so much. It's the best hour, like the one-on-one -on -one conversation, just like feeling like, Okay. And then I go into work on Monday and I'm like, I'm relaxed. I'm refreshed. Got these fresh nails. Like I'm ready to go. <laughs> so, you know, it's different for everybody is all I'm trying to say. It is. Yeah, it is. I definitely agree with y'all. I mean, for me, like with my self-care routine, I will take half a day off on Friday because I feel like I do a lot. I do probably two weeks worth of work in one week. And I'm like, you know what? I deserve to end early on Friday and I also let the lab go or we'll have a lab dinner. Then I let the lab go just to kind of, you know, tell them I appreciate what they're doing. But for me, like besides that, I actually like to binge watch TV shows, cook a very nice dinner and have either pina cotta or creme brulee and just sit and, you know, have my space separate from, you know, talking to anybody. And it's just fun to do that. And I definitely agree that self-care is important. The last question that I kind of have for you is really about more or less advice on 
one thing that you said about pursuing your dreams when you're in graduate school or a postdoc or a faculty phase and applying for grants, you know, you're a very well-funded scientist. And I was wondering if you have any kind of thoughts or advice about how to pursue an idea that, you know, maybe not someone may believe in, but I mean, it's gotten you so much funding, right? Like how to do the novel ideas? How do you help craft that novel idea, even when you don't have the support maybe that you need? So that's what I would love for it to kind of end on because, you know, you're an excellent mentor. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess sometimes people may not believe in your ideas or your vision, but let the work you do speak for you. So you can always show people later, right? Like, you know, I mentioned how my grad student advisor told me don't ever talk about aging, but she hired me back to do that work, right? Utilize the resources that are available to you. So a lot of times there are grant writing workshops. So I was, you know, I had fellowships as a grad student, but like the F31, never discussed. So I saw that, all right, it's something with me. I can't write grants. Let me take advantage of these FASTEP grant writing courses. And so I went to those courses as a grad student because I knew as a postdoc, I'm going to hit the ground running. So I took advantage of those resources, learned how to write grants, learned how to sell your ideas. And a lot of times it's like, all right, the NSF like things organized this way, the NIH like things organized this way. Take your idea and put it into these structures and people will receive your ideas. And so now as even as a faculty member, they have so many opportunities to help you. You have people who've gotten grants so years and people on the study sections, and they are ready to mentor young faculty members to get those awards. And, you know, just be strategic, be in the right position to take advantage of those resources. And, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. How does that agency like, you know, how do they want it, you know, polished and packaged? Put your unique ideas in that package and just have evidence to support what you're thinking. Be able to, you know, it's, to me, it's common sense, but that's, you know, it's common street and book sense, right? You just got to be strategic and play the game and plant the right seeds, right? So you know what they're looking for and how do you tweak what you are offering to fit into what they're looking for? This is great. Yeah. I think you're kind of bringing up. So, I mean, I know that your, for example, your postdoc work, answered a really long-standing question that was kind of just sitting there for a long time, right? Like you were, you know, kind of defining this question about NAD flux, like does it change, does consumption change, does it production, you know, during this process of aging? So how did you know that that was the right seed to plant? Like how did you make the decision, okay, I'm going to take this and this is the idea, I'm going to run with it. What was that process? Because I'm sure, you know, yeah. yeah, it's been there. I think I kind of talked about that earlier because I was saying like, you know, when we know we had Josh, we had the tools. I did it. I did it in worms using a lot of the tools that Josh and his lab had created, but I applied it to NED metabolism. He had a grad student who was beginning to quantitate NED production and synthesis and consumption fluxes in cell lines. And I even remember at the my interview, we talked a lot because I had did it, you know, so we were, you know, I was helping her with that. And so we knew that we were going to take all of this into mice. So what do you do? And she was also, you know, young, she was going to quantify this. And when I got there, I helped finish it up a little bit. But yeah, what questions do you answer? So that's why I was thinking about fatty liver disease. I was thinking about Alzheimer's. But everything I was saying was this disease and aging, this disease and aging. And when I went through, I'm like, well, in the literature, you know, 
You can supplement and rescue. You see down regulation and various synthesis enzymes. So is it impaired synthesis? And also you see parts, you see CD, you, you see all of these NAD consumers that are hyper-regulated. And then there's a whole field on sirtuins. <laughs> and that's another story for another day. Like what are sirtuins really, really doing? And to me, no one had ever really asked, what about redox metabolism? I came in with knowing a lack of salvage synthesis causes glycolytic blockage. So if glycolysis is blocked, where is everything shuttling? So the first question was simple, like, all right, let's just do the consumption of production flux in young versus age animals and not being, and that's the time where you have to kind of step back and not be too extra, but it was what was received. And it was probably just, you know, not doing 1500 things. And people are saying, it was like, oh girl, you're not focused. And just dismissing it all together, you know, so it was a give and take. It was, I guess, a learning lesson for me too. just ask the basic question. And I think I learned that, too, a little bit from Josh. And I kind of took that, you know, I'm a sponge. I soak up, I hear. So I was just sitting in those group meetings, hearing how people talk. And I took those questions and he was just like, wow, this is, you know, and I don't, you know, I guess also for my background training from grad school, too. So just taking everything you learn from over the years. It sounds like you were really strategic, kind of just, you know, I love it. I think that, you know, you were thinking about what is around me, what is available to me, what is the question? And then that question has opened so many doors for you now too, right? Like it's a seemingly simple question that has the potential to move into so many different directions now with your research. But no program, one did so. flux. <laughs> that's the thing about it, right? But that's was, it. You are the person to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were the person to do it. I love it. I mean, that's great advice for folks that are going into postdocs. Think about a question that has the potential to open new doors. Right. And also the technical advancement. What do you have to offer that you're good at that no one else, you know, could do? Right. Like the St. Jude opportunity. He was just like, yeah, I can't hire no one that's never done a post. I mean, a Western block. But, you know, that's not where we were. I was looking at the flow of metabolites, you know, so we didn't have to do that at that time. So, but, you know, that was the rejection and and protection. And now you're a jack of all trades. So that's Mm -hmm. it's amazing. That's really awesome. And thank you for sharing so much with us in such a short period of time. And we always end our our STEM tea podcast with kind of like, what are you drinking? So we'll give you an example. It doesn't necessarily have to be alcohol per se, but like me, I like to drink in Talavera mug. That's from Mexico that Edgar gave me. And basically I always drink tea or coffee in it. Today I'm drinking tea. It's orange tea. So I was just wondering, you know, Tina, what are you drinking on? Melanie, what are you drinking on? Maybe later today if you don't have it in hand, but just curious. Yeah, I had my coffee already and now I'm sipping on a lemon and ginger seltzer water, which is very delicious and refreshing. I had my coffee this morning. Love, I started making my own coffee at home and I'm a coffee drinker again, but I don't do too much. But throughout the day, I usually do like hint waters, propel sometimes, but I really love the hints. And I may have a, my grad student makes coffee for me. So I may get a cup there and he's, it's really good, you know? Yeah, it's very authentic. And I just wait until what's being brewed. And if he doesn't do it fast enough, I just do my own over there, but yeah. That's awesome. But thank you so much for your time and we'll be in touch. And thank you for this moment with you. We really appreciate you bringing us inside. Thank you for your time. All right, thank you. I'll take care.